Hello, everyone. My name is Charlie Willis, and today's scripture reading will be from Exodus 4, 1 through 17. Moses answered, What if they do not believe me or listen to me, and say, The Lord did not appear to you? Then the Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? A staff, he replied. The Lord said, Throw it on the ground. Moses threw it on the ground, and it became a snake, and he ran from it. Then the Lord said to him, Reach out your hand and take it by the tail. So Moses reached out and took, took hold of the snake, and it turned back into a staff in his hand. This, said the Lord, is so that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has appeared to you. Then the Lord said, Put your hand inside your cloak. So Moses put his hand into his cloak, and when he took it out, the skin was leprous. It had become as white as snow. Now, put it back into your cloak, he said. So Moses put his hand back into his cloak, and when he took it out, it was restored, like the rest of his flesh. Then the Lord said, If they do not believe you or pay attention to the first sign, they may believe the second. But if they do not believe these two signs or listen to you, Take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground. The water you take from the river will become blood on the ground. Moses said to the Lord, Pardon your servant, Lord. I have never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and of tongue. The Lord said to him, Who gave human beings their mouths? Who makes them deaf or mute? Who gives them sight or makes them blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go. I will help you speak and will teach you what to say. But Moses said, Pardon your servant, Lord. Please send someone else. Then the Lord's anger burned against Moses, and he said, What about your brother Aaron, the Levite? I know he can speak well. He is already on his way to meet you, and he will be glad to see you. You shall speak to him and put words in his mouth. I will help both of you speak, and I will teach you what to do. He will speak to the people for you, and it will be as if he were your mouth and as if you were God to him. But take this staff in your hand so that you can perform the signs with it. This is the word of the Lord. Well, I'm um, glad to be back. I was gone last week. I surrendered to an illness. Um, And ironically, the name of my sermon is Choosing Surrender, but not that kind of surrender. A number of years ago, we had an intern for our college ministry. Some of you who have been here for a while will remember his name. His name was Monty Black. Monty worked alongside of me, uh, did remarkable work with us in college ministry, and on occasion, I would have him speak on Sunday night. One particular semester, we decided to do a mini-series on love and marriage. Now, I don't remember my intention, but as I look back on it, it seemed rather foolish. I assigned Monty the sermon on marriage, and he was single. Uh, Now, he was a smart guy. He was wise, but let's face it, he didn't have any experience. 
So Monty's sermon title, which I will never forget, was Marriage, No More Choice. This, like, what? <laughs> we, <laughs> we gave Monty so much grief over that sermon title. What a way to lead, Monty. Marriage, no more choice. I have to quit playing the field, you know? But you know what is funny in retrospect? He was right. He was right. And I don't mean it in a negative way. What I mean is this. When I committed to marriage... I chose surrender. I released choice. I became, not every day very well, one with another. I became, not every day very well, her will, not my will. I became every day, not very well, one with her. I surrendered. I surrendered Bob, and I gave Bob over to another. Now, let me make sure you understand. I don't think I surrendered to bondage or slavery, okay? What I surrendered to was love. I surrendered to love. And when we think about the concept of surrender as a step in discipleship, that's the first thing I I want you to think about. The way in which surrender to God is surrender to love. Not surrender to bondage, but surrender to love. You could all probably quote these very words, and so could I, but I want to read them to you. On one occasion, Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? And he replied this way, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commands. That was in the hearing, and a question was answered Uh, The question that he gave the answer to was proposed to him by the Sadducees. It was in the hearing of those who knew the Jewish law well. The teachers of the law would have known exactly what he was talking about when he began the phrase, love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind. Because that was what was called the Shema. Every young Jewish child knew the Shema. And repeated it over and over again. But as as typical of Jesus, he put a footnote on it. You see, the Shema comes from Deuteronomy chapter 6. Jesus just seamlessly moved from the Shema to another phrase that comes from Leviticus. And love your neighbor as yourself. In effect... What Scott McKnight, a very interesting author, says is with that phrase, with that addition to the first part of the Shema, Jesus, in effect, pronounced the Jesus 
creed. At the very base of discipleship, said Jesus, follow the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. The unspoken in that statement is follow me. My first point in my sermon is this. Surrender to God's love. To love God is to turn away from self-love. Self-love is a really popular idea nowadays, isn't it? Love yourself, find yourself. There's an extreme that could be seen on both sides. You could exaggerate that too much, and I don't mean to demean it as if it's not important to love yourself. I'm not calling us to be an ascetic and to burn our bodies and punish ourselves. On the other hand, self-love can be narcissism, narcissism at a very deep level. All we're thinking about is our desires and our needs and we're self-gratifying all the time. Jesus says, I want you to move away from that kind of self-love towards God love. If you love God the way you're supposed to with all your heart and soul and mind, and if you love your neighbor as yourself, you'll have very little time for self-pity and for self-love. Because your focus will be redirected. In other words, choose God's way, not your own way. There's a second part to loving God and surrendering to God. And it's this, you need to love your neighbor as yourself. When you love your neighbor as yourself, you leave selfishness behind. By definition, think about it. Love your neighbor as yourself. You're leaving self behind. And you're loving your neighbor the way you would love yourself. Now, if we wanted to know what that meant, Jesus gave us a story of what it meant. That's where the Good Samaritan comes to our minds. Because disciples naturally ask, who is my neighbor? And Jesus said, I'll tell you who your neighbor is. And he told the story of the Good Samaritan. So who are you to love? You're to love people who are even your enemies. That's loving your neighbor. So love the Lord your God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. I like the way that John Stott put it, basically summarizing Jesus' words. Listen to this. Only if we serve will we experience freedom. Only if we lose ourselves in loving will we find ourselves. Only if we die to our own self-centeredness will we begin to live. What a beautiful summary of Jesus' teachings. To love God is to turn away from self. It's to leave selfishness behind by loving your neighbor as yourself. And to surrender to God's love means to love God is to follow Jesus. 
Jesus routinely did what he did in this passage, redefined the Scripture. Love the Lord your God and your neighbor as yourself. The question is, what does that mean? High-sounding phrase, isn't it? Oh, by the way, for just, just a moment, can I have the attention of junior high and high school youth? Tonight, this is going to be your teaching. Deontay is going to ask you at the end of a lesson, what does it actually mean, these words? Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. What does it mean? I want you to hold that thought until the end, but it's always a challenge. Of course, we know, uh, among other things, what it really means. Avoiding extremes, it actually means a lot of practical things in our lives. It means instead of hate and vengeance, we love. It means instead of pride, we choose humility. It means instead of deceit, we choose honesty. It means instead of allowing things to rule us, choosing things, we choose God. Those are some of the things it means to follow Jesus. So, first main point, surrender to God's love. That comes from Matthew chapter 22, verse 37. Second main point, surrender to God's way. That comes from the passage that was read a few moments ago from Exodus. Now, if we had read the whole section, you would have seen some background that I'm going to give you now, and perhaps you remember it well. Moses has been banished from Egypt. Why? Because, in effect, he murdered someone, and he's a fugitive. His murder was, can you say this, good-intentioned? He was trying to save one of his Hebrew brothers from being beat within an inch of his life, but it made a mess for him, and he had to flee. And now as a shepherd on the backside of the desert, he's tending his sheep, and he comes upon a bush that's in flame but not burning up. A miraculous event. And as he looks at the bush, he wonders what in the world is going on. He steps in to get a closer look. And as he gets a closer look, of course, he hears a voice. And he is terrified because he believes it to be the voice of God. Like I said, Moses had a justice gene about him. He had a heart for his people. And he thought, I'm going to do my best to make sure that injustice is not placed upon them. And he got involved in a dispute, and it led to a murder. That was the way of Moses. Now God says to him, Come back and follow my way. You tried. You messed up. I still want you. Come back and follow my way. 
Moses, of course, is um, not impressed with the call, shall we say. <laughs> Says, you got the wrong guy. How is this going to work? You got to give me some signs. I don't get this at all. Ever been there? He says to God, you got to show me what's going on here. I, I want to summarize what was read with, with three points of surrender. First, God says to Moses, give me your staff. Give me your staff. Staff is an important instrument. It's, it's, it's a, a thing that shepherds use to lead their sheep. Surrender your staff, says God. And Moses drops his staff and it turns into a serpent. And of course, like all of us, he jumps back to get away from it. And God said, no, no, I want you to pick up the snake now. At this point, Moses, I guess he's already surrendered, right? Who's going to pick up a snake by the tail? Okay, God, I will. And he reaches down to pick up the snake and it turns into a staff. Then God says to Moses, in effect, give me your hand. Moses surrenders his hand to the inside of his cloak, pulls it out, it's leprous. God says, put it back in, pulls it out, it's healed. The third instrument that God asks him to surrender is his voice. I want you to give me my, your voice, Moses. I, I don't know what kind of speaker Moses was, but he didn't think he was very good. He might have had a squeaky voice for all I know. I kind of doubt it, but he thought it was inadequate to the task. And God said, surrender it to me. Now look, my friends, what happened when Moses surrendered those three instruments to God. With the staff, he stopped leading sheep on the backside of the desert and led more than a million people across the desert to the promised land. With that same staff, he reached out with his hand and parted the Red Sea. And with that voice, he stepped back and he said, wait, look at the mighty hand of God. And with that voice, he declared for the first time in human history, the Ten Commandments. Because he became the voice of God for them. God said, surrender those three instruments and see what I'll do in my way. You know what we're inclined to, friends? We're inclined to chart our own course, aren't we? We're inclined to say, this is my plan. This is my way out. I've got a plan to get out of this awful circumstance, this awful place that I live. That's not really wrong. But it needs to be redirected. In other words, the desire to get to a better place, very well established in your heart, very good. But that desire, that very desire needs to be turned over to God himself so that God can chart your path. 
And you may think, you may think that you know what's going to happen if you follow your own path, but you have no idea what else is going to happen if you allow God to redirect your ways. When God redirects your ways, things that you never imagined take place. So quick moment of application before I get to the end. Where, where are you right now? What are your circumstances right now? Maybe it's not so good. Maybe you've figured a way out. Maybe you need to pause and ask God to lead you out. I mentioned Scott McKnight a a moment ago. He had a book called Jesus Creed, which is a really interesting book. He summarized it this way in one of the many summaries. He said, the disciple holds up the white flag of surrender with this simple prayer. Thy will be done. It's the prayer of Jesus to the Father. It's the prayer that Jesus says we ought to follow. So we surrender to God's love and we surrender to God's way. And third, we surrender to God's life. I mean completely to God's life. We let God take over entirely. Just like our reading from Galatians 2. Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. I'm dead. And now Christ lives in me. And every pulse of my heart, every action of my life is an extension of the Christ within me. Everything. You know, Galatians 2, there's so many passages I I would like to have read. Galatians 2 is a wonderful one. But there's another one in, in Philippians that I want to refer you to. In Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 18, Paul is basically saying, I, I've been through a lot. And Philippi was probably in a jail at the time. Might have been one of his last times of being able to write a letter. And in the jail, he tells them, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it's become clear throughout the whole palace garden to everyone else that I'm in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of my brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so in love, knowing that I am here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, 
supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. And here's the phrase. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether for false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. I'm not even in the picture, says Paul. It doesn't matter. What matters is Jesus. Because I've been crucified with Christ. And I no longer live, but Christ lives within me. It's almost as though Paul can't even speak objectively about his circumstances or about himself because he is so immersed in the presence of Jesus Christ that he says, I don't know. I don't care. It's all about Jesus. How can he come to this kind of conclusion about life? Because we all want our stuff. We all have our own desires. Among other things, it's because Paul actually believes in the superiority of the eternal over the material. He actually believes that human circumstances do not define reality. They only contribute to the eternal purposes of God in Christ. He believes that the invisible eclipses the visible. That somehow the visible is only part of the story and there's an invisible reality all around it through which he attempts to view life itself. He believes in the transcendence of God over history. That no matter what happens, a sovereign God is working out his purposes and will accomplish his will through us. What a great thing. Or without us, if we're so foolish. The final flurry uh, is actually a conclusion. And it's this. Surrender to God means freedom from tyranny to self. I repeat, surrender to God means freedom from tyranny to self. If you're always trying to get your own way, It's exhausting. If you're always trying to get your own way, you know in your quiet moments, it's not satisfying. It's like eating that candy that you know you shouldn't eat and you don't get any satisfaction from the first two bites and you continue until you're almost sick. That's what self-gratification does to us spiritually. 
It doesn't satisfy. It makes us sick. And then the tyrant is self. We've attempted to satisfy self and we've allowed self to rule us. And when self rules you, you're miserable. Surrender to God means freedom from the tyranny to self. Surrender to God means finding true purpose. In the face of the worst kind of odds, at our staff meetings every Wednesday morning, um, a different person is assigned to bring a devotional before we do business and uh, I'm routinely amazed by the devotionals. Uh, this week, Amy Tosinski brought a devotional, and she brought a devotional because it grew out of a study she's been doing of a book. The author is Ruth Haley Burton, and the title of the book is Strengthening the Soul of Your Leadership, subtitle, Seeking God in the Crucible of Ministry. And the author uh, recalls an event in the life of Martin Luther King. Those of you who know the history might know that there was first an assassination attempt before Martin Luther King was killed. And it was a stabbing. And that stabbing was so close to his aorta that the doctors told him, if you had as much as sneezed, it would have killed you. The night before his assassination, he was speaking at a church. And he read a letter that a young girl had sent to him. And the letter went like this. Dear Dr. King, she wrote, While it should not matter... I would like to mention that I'm a white girl. I read in the paper of your misfortune and your suffering, and I read that if you had sneezed, you would have died. And I'm simply writing to say, I'm happy you didn't sneeze. On the night before his death, after reading that, Letter, he said, I'm happy I didn't sneeze too. <laughs> but then he went on to say something that was happening within him. Something that gave him a different perspective on life. With all that he'd been a part of up until then, he wanted them to know that this kind of thing just didn't really matter like it used to. He alluded to Moses' experience on the mountain before he passed away. If you know anything about Dr. King, you couldn't get more than five sentences before the Bible was in there somewhere. And what appeared to be uncanny foresight, he spoke on that night. He said, I don't know what will happen now. We've got some difficult days ahead but it really doesn't matter with me now because I've been to the mountaintop 
I don't mind. Like anybody, I'd like to live a long life. Longevity has its place. But I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And he allowed me to go to the mountain. And I have looked over. And I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you. But I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. And I'm so happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man because my eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. Hours later, he was assassinated. There was a sense of not resignation, but surrender to God on that night. I'm following God, and nothing else matters. You know, surrender to God means letting God give us a real life. A life that's not worried about life and death, but a real life. For those of you who might have seen in this slide 12 Steps of Discipleship and wondered about Alcoholics Anonymous 12 Steps, I'm glad it didn't slip by you. There's some real power in the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. And for those who have gone through that program and experienced recovery, they all know which step is which because they go over it all the time. Maybe some of you don't. So I'll remind you or tell you for the first time what step number three is. Step number three is make a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understand him. That's preceded by a deep understanding that their life is out of control, that their path has not worked, that they're either at a dead end or about to die. And so they surrender to God. Alcoholics will tell you um, that when they realized their lives were unmanageable and surrendered, they found their life. That's when they found life. That's when the slavery to self was destroyed. And a new life was possible. There's another principle in Alcoholics Anonymous that I'll just summarize with choose sobriety one day at a time. One day at a time. 
Here's what I know about my disposition and perhaps about yours. I can be challenged by the idea of following God and surrendering and all those wonderful platitudinous phrases. And then I can think big, grandioso thoughts about my own surrender. And then I could ask questions that go on ad infinitum about what surrender means and which parts and how much. And I can become an extremist. But maybe along with you, I ought to step back. And to keep faith simple. And I ought to say to myself, what does it mean at each turn? in each day to surrender to God. Just just right now. Not for 50 years. Just right now. What does it mean? And to pray that simple prayer when the question, which is a beautiful question, comes to our mind, pray the simple prayer. I've been crucified with Christ. Now, thy will be done. What does it mean right now? Discipleship is surrender by taking daily steps. Baby steps. One step at a time. Will you join me? Let's pray. Our gracious Lord, we are so delighted, overwhelmed by your love, and so grateful that you're patient with us. We can get all fired up. We can think we have it figured out. We can have grandiose ideas. And then we just blow it. And we feel like a failure and we say, what's the use? And that's not where you want us to be. Where you want us to be is to surrender our hearts to you. And then one day at a time and one step at a time, figure out what it means to say, I'm crucified with Christ. Thy will be done. So we pray, Lord, that you will allow us to hold up high white flag of surrender to pray that prayer and to act upon it. In the name of Christ our Lord we pray. Amen.